the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. From policy to culture, principles to politics, this is The Seth Leibson Show. Welcome back. I am Seth Leibson as we head into the third hour. Yesterday, as many of you know, Karen Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, was confronted by Peter Ducey with her previous questioning, her previous questioning of election outcomes that favored Republicans, denying those elections legitimacy. Uh, There's various audio clips. Uh, Here's the one I will share with you from yesterday, Karen Jean-Pierre and Peter Ducey. A follow-up about the MAGA Republican attention. So if we're all in agreement that it is incorrect to say the 2020 election was stolen, what about the 2016 election? Look, I'm not going to go back to where we were or what happened in 2016. We're going to focus on the here and now. We're going to focus on what's happening today, uh, this inflection point that the president pointed out uh, very clearly, very decisively uh, in, in a few speeches about what the country needs to do at this time to bring the country together. And he believes that's where majority of Americans are when it comes to protecting our democracy, when it comes to protecting our rights, and when it comes to protecting our freedoms. That's what we're going to talk about. That's what we're going to focus on, on where we are today. Where we are today. How did Orwell put it in 1984? Quote, nothing exists except an endless present in which the party, capital P, is always right. Now, I know the normal reaction is, what the heck? And how is this not so outrageous? And how can they be so hypocritical? The answer is, this is who they are. Nothing outside the state. The party with a capital P is always right. The ends justify the means. This is how Joe Biden can call us fascists us fascists as he enforces more government control into the private and corporate sectors, as he and his party cabin and curtail the First Amendment, as he and his party libel citizens as threats to democracy with contempt for the rule of law and the Constitution, as he and his party ignore left-wing calls to violence and highlight anything they can as right-wing calls to violence, as he and his party defend the deadly and serious riots of 2020 but condemn only one day in January, as he and his party speak of breaking norms while their Speaker of the House dramatically shreds the State of the Union speech delivered by Donald Trump, as he and his party pressure social and other media to censor news unfavorable to the unfavorable to them while claiming we are the fascists, as he and his party own Jefferson Davis, Bull Connor, and George Wallace, but say we are the party of those three. We've discussed this before. Regime hierarchy. I think I like the phrase opinion and principle hierarchy. Let me explain. But if you want the quick cut to the chase, it's that we conservatives and we Republicans simply shall not exist. We are not to be considered part of a legitimate 
a legitimate political movement. We are not considered legitimate when we organize. We are not considered legitimate when we speak. We are not considered legitimate when we campaign or electioneer or govern. Quod licit jovi non licit bovi is the Latin version William Buckley used to describe this phenomenon. What is permitted to the gods is not permitted to the cows or the swine. What the left and Democrats say and do, conservatives and Republicans simply may not. We may not and would not sick a sick lawyer on a Supreme Court nominee and invent rape charges against him to scuttle his reputation and nomination. The left and the Democrats, no problemo. We may not and would not take a rape allegation against a nominee to the Supreme Court and sit on it, hide it, conceal it for months, only to then publicize and launch it later at the most convenient political moment to scuttle the nomination. The left and the Democrats, no problemo. We would not attempt to impeach Nancy Pelosi for declaring our presidential election was hijacked and that Donald Trump is an illegitimate president, as she tweeted and stated in 2017 and since. If Donald Trump were to say something similar, he will be subject not only to impeachment, but charged with inciting a riot. This is to say nothing of Hillary Clinton, Jimmy Carter, numerous congressmen and reporter op-ed journalists saying the same thing. It is disrespectful and racist for Republicans not to unanimously vote to confirm or at least celebrate the nomination of Ketanji Brown Jackson, as it was disrespectful and conspiracy theorist inspired to raise questions of and to her about some of her previous judicial rulings that would raise eyebrows in any normal world. But it is fine and dandy for Ted Kennedy to say one of the most respected legal scholars and judges in America, Robert Bork, when he was nominated to the Supreme Court, that his was, quote, an America of back alley abortions and segregated lunch counters, close quote. Amy Coney Barrett gets nominated to the Supreme Court and Professor Ibram X. Kendi can write about her and her adopted Haitian children this way, quote, some white colonizers, some white colonizers adopted black children to civilize these savage children in the superior ways of white people while using them as props in their lifelong pictures of denial while cutting the biological parents of these children out of the picture of humanity, close quote. That professor gets book publication deals galore, including children's books, a speaker's bureau, and several Netflix contracts to advise and portray his points of view. The president of, Brandi, of branding for Levi Strauss tries to get the company to support opening schools for all children after the research shows children are not at risk and not substantial spreaders of COVID. And she is forced to resign because the company calls her a racist. Donald Trump is banned and censored from Twitter. Kendi, quoted above, Louis Farrakhan and the mullahs of Iran are not. Both refer to America as Satan and wish Israel be wiped off the map homosexuals as well. Riots over three months that lead to billions of dollars of damage, firebombings of courthouses, taking over of police precincts, the loss of 30 lives and over 14,000 arrests are mostly peaceful and will get U.S. senators, including candidates for vice president, seeking donations to bail them out. An anarchist mob of several hundred caused no loss of life, but one of their own shot in the back lasts for seven hours. It's on one day. And they are tied to the entirety of the Republican Party as anti-democratic insurrectionists. We can play this game for hours. Donald Trump is the orange man. Jen Psaki's hair color isn't even a tertiary color. 
Ronald Reagan was a bigot. Al Sharpton is a civil rights leader. Ron DeSantis wants to keep schools out of the business of training five-year-olds to think of themselves as sex objects. Disney, a children's entertainment company, attacks Ron DeSantis and announces it will deliberately portray children's characters that way. DeSantis is the bigot. Disney is the enlightened. Standing for the national anthem when a Republican is president is racist. Standing when a Democrat is president is patriotic. Try this. Jeff Bezos, perhaps the wealthiest or second wealthiest man in the world, can buy and owned the Washington Post, no problem. Elon Musk, the wealthiest or perhaps second wealthiest man in the world, cannot buy and own Twitter. They create disinformation boards so that consent is converted as not coming from the people to shape the government they want, but from the government so that it can shape the people they want. What is good for the gods is not good for the cows or swine. And the left and the Democrats see themselves as gods and conservatives or Republicans as swine. Not on an equal playing field. Non pari passu in American politics. We are to be disappeared. Liberal Nelson Rockefeller's staff put out a memo at the 1964 Republican convention saying their effort was to, quote, remove Barry Goldwater as a member of the human race, close quote. The effort to write all conservatives or Republicans out of the mainstream or rational stream of the American polity, an effort to make us untermenschen or pariahs, has been long coming and at a crescendo pitch just now. We are at best curious throwbacks to a time before enlightenment, and enlightenment being so fluid as to constitute whatever the left dreamed up as long ago as yesterday. At worst, we are white supremacists. This is why Vaclav Havel, who well understood the abuse of language under a totalitarian mindset, could write this, quote, If the main pillar of the system is living a lie, then it is not surprising that the fundamental threat to it is living the truth. This is why the truth must be suppressed more severely than anything else, close quote. How best to suppress it? Give it names like racist, sexist, ableist, homophobic, transphobic, Islamophobic, xenophobic, and anti-Semitic, fascist, and semi-fascist. Or wrap it all up in a box called extreme or perpetuation of disinformation. Where we are, what we have, is an anathematization of what Thomas Jefferson said in his first inaugural address, that we are all Americans regardless of our points of view in the major parties, and that, quote, every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle, close quote. Well, here's the damned irony of it all. The left and the Democrats do now see us as outside the acceptable and fully gripped by difference of principle, not just opinion. But you know what? In a way, they are right. They are just looking at it from the wrong perspective. They have a distorted parallax view. We are, in actuality, opposing differences of principle here. What principle do we differ with? The leftist principle that can just as easily be labeled neo-Marxist as it can neo-Nazi. The notion that our genders and our skin colors dictate how we think and how we should think. The idea that children should be used for political and cultural recruitment and as instruments to soothe the anxieties of adults. Please understand, this is the new geography we are forced to operate on, to practice our politics upon. 
And if you want to understand the new calls for cancellation and censorship that have cropped up over the past decade or so, along with an attendant and ongoing slander of our beliefs with increasing fury, it is this. Aliens, subspecie democratus, non-Americans, subhumans, after all, none of those categories deserve the regular rights and norms of civility or any respect at all whatsoever. whatsoever. When we finally absorb, when we finally understand this, we will be able to operate with more political savvy and understand the new playing field and grounds we have been forced to operate on. It is, after all, not the first time gulags were used to isolate and remove from discourse designated enemies of the state. In Alexander Solzhenitsyn's rendering, he pointed out that Lenin dehumanized and delegitimized opposition set for silencing by referring to the opposition as insects and saboteurs. We are seditionists. We are conspirators. We are extremists. We are enemies of democracy. There are any number of labels one can use to marginalize an opposition party. We used to avoid these ends, as Robert Jackson put it, by avoiding their beginnings. We are well into this importation and acceptance of totalitarian thinking now, though. It began a long while ago, and this may be our last opportunity to stop it in November. So if I may quote a previous female prime minister of the UK, let us not go wobbly. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. It is a delight to welcome back to our airwaves Nicholas Eberstadt. He holds a chair at the American Enterprise Institute in political economy, author of several books, one forthcoming, Men Without Work, post-pandemic edition. Uh, He had a piece in the Wall Street Journal last week that is so crucially important I couldn't wait to get him on the show. The title of the piece was The Americans Who Never Went Back to Work After the Pandemic. Dr. Eberstadt, thanks for joining us again. Hey, thank you for inviting me again, Seth. You betcha. Um, Talk to me, talk to the audience. What is the picture of Americans not working post-pandemic? What is the overall picture here? What got your juices flowing? Well, we had a crisis with... Uh, unworking men before the pandemic. Right. Uh, for prime age men, the guys 25 to 54, kind of the backbone of the labor force, uh, work rates were down to basically late Depression era by 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the problems of course, not being unemployment. Unemployment, we all know, is near record lows. But rather people who are labor force dropouts, Mm -hmm. people who are neither working nor looking for work. Mm -hmm. Um, Since the recovery from the pandemic, we have a new situation. We've gone from men without work to work without men or women. Right. We've got 11 million unfilled jobs in our economy. We have an unprecedented peacetime labor shortage. 
while simultaneously we have many millions of former uh, members of the labor force who are sitting on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're not, not being enticed back into the workforce despite the uh, most attractive uh, situation with regard to you know, bargaining power for workers that uh, I think you could talk about in uh, living memory, mm-hmm. uh, this great resignation. Mm-hmm. We've got about uh, we've got about four million fewer workers in the workforce than we would have had today if we just kept on pre-pandemic trends. Mm-hmm. What we're seeing now is that this um, men without work syndrome, uh, this labor force dropout syndrome, seems to be seems to be spreading to other groups of society, including uh, older workers or older former workers, and also maybe also to some of the younger women. How many are you estimating, how many millions of men are you estimating of working age are not interested in the workforce now? A few years ago, I remember that number was somewhere around 7 million or so. Would you guess that that's, mm-hmm. go- is, is that, has that number increased dramatically? It, it went, it, it, w- it was about 7 million. It went down maybe to about 6 million. It's now above 7 million again. Okay. Uh, if you if you draw a line uh, from 1965 to today, uh, you can trace almost a straight trajectory in the percentage of labor force dropout guys between the ages of 25 and 54. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems to be almost unaffected by economic booms or busts by big disruptive events like trade shocks. Um, It almost almost looks as if it's kind of like a a geological force. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so what is is driving it is not not only the economic and structural changes that we know so much about. Something else big has been going on. Let me talk to you about that something else big, if I can, on the other side of the break, um, because I, I'll, I'll share with you my, my my own thesis, which isn't nearly anywhere close to as studied as yours. But it seems like the government has certainly through the pandemic harmed the work ethic, uh, diminished uh, or reduced the work ethic. Um, you have in previous writings talked about, uh, I think, based on uh, some of the work of Alan Kroger's. There's the opioid part to this. There's the additional screen time work to this. I'm wondering if on the other side of the break we might talk about some of these causes. Would that be okay with you? Love to. Uh, I am Seth Liebson. He is Nick Eberstadt, Nicholas Eberstadt. He is the Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute, AEI.org. And we're talking about his piece in the Wall Street Journal, The Americans Who Never Went Back to Work After the Pandemic. Portions of this show are brought to you by our good friends at Y-Refi. If you are looking for a remarkable investment opportunity with a great return for investors, check out my friends at Y-Refi. They're offering up a fixed no-load interest rate up to 10.25% for investors, all in a secure and collateralized portfolio. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm. 
run by really good people who are doing very well by helping others, and you can be a part of that too. Check them out at investyrefi.com. The word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y dot com, or give them a call at 855-316-3087, 855-316-3087. Nicholas Eberstadt and I will be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Nicholas Eberstadt is our guest. He's the Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute. We're talking about his piece in the Wall Street Journal last week, The Americans Who Never Went Back to Work After the Pandemic. Uh, Dr. Eberstadt uh, from Chaucer and elsewhere, we know that idle hands are the devil's workshop. Um, what is explaining uh, these um, robust working aged men uh, who just don't want to participate in the labor force. My trifecta is the government, um, opioids, and screen time. You ta- take it apart or add or to subtract. What is explaining this? What's driving this? Well, I, I try to dig down into this in my, uh, in my new book, in uh, Men Without Work Post Pandemic uh, Edition. We get a hint of what's going on if we look at what the men who are neither working nor looking for work uh, say they do with all of their time every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are from government time use surveys. They, they're, they're dry as dust, except when you take a look at the um, uh, terrible stories that they tell about people's lives. Um, for guys who are out of the workforce and not in training, neither employed nor in education and training. Economists call them NEET, N-E-E-T. They basically don't do, they say, they don't do civil society. They Mm -hmm. don't do worship or volunteering or charity. Mm -hmm. Although they've got, uh, I think, pretty much nothing but time on their hands, they do uh, surprisingly little help around the house or help with other family members. What they say they do is watch screen right uh 2000 hours a year on average like as if it were a full-time job and not spreadsheets uh, we're not talking about excel sheets on computer screens are we well so uh you mentioned before the break uh alan kruger played alan kruger's work showing that um also self-reported about half of the guys that they were taking pain pills pain medication every day and so it's not just um uh, it's not just World of Warcraft. It's uh, World of Warcraft Stone, yeah. Call of Duty Stone. Right. And this is, number one, not exactly the way to burnish your um, CV for getting back into the game. Right. And number two, it's much, unfortunately, much more likely to put you on a path towards uh, what they now call the depths of despair. Right. Um, so it, it's a, it is a disconnected from work, disconnected from society disconnected from family sort of 
picture that we see with far too large a share of the men in our society who should, by nature, really be providers. How is it, Nick, that they are putting pizza on the table? How are they affording life, even if it's not a life that you might esteem? How are they affording their basics? Well, that's a really good question, Seth. I mean, I, in, in Men Without Work, I show, again, on the basis of government numbers, which probably are imperfect. But government numbers suggest that they're, uh, they might be rely- they're relying on friends and family. They're relying on girlfriends, they're relying on other family members, and they're relying on Uncle Sam. Uh, there is a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of disability payment going to this group. These are not large sums of money. They do not live a princely life. I'm afraid that a lot of people in this group live a rather miserable, uh, misery full life. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is enough to keep them not at the bottom of society economically. They're probably in the second quintile. Ironically, in terms of their consumption levels, they might be where we would have expected in the old days to to locate the what we used to call the working class. Right. Right. Okay. All right. This was a short segment. Let me do one more segment with you when we come back from this break. Uh, Men Without Work Post-Pandemic Edition. Uh, is the book Nicholas Eberstadt has coming out. You can pre-order it right now through your favorite online bookseller, Men Without Work, post-pandemic edition. I want to, when we come back, talk to Nick about why his seminal work, Men Without his seminal uh, writing, Men Without Work, needs a post-pandemic uh, edition. Something about the pandemic changed a lot of things, changed an ethos here. At least that's my hypothesis. We'll run it by Nick when we come right back. In the meantime, I am Seth Liebson, and I want to put in a word for our sponsor, Balance of Nature. I take it every single day. Pure, potent plant power. One daily dose gives you a blend of 16 whole fruits and 15 whole vegetables. 100% natural. Boosts your energy, boosts your health, boosts your immunity. Check them out at balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Nicholas Eberstadt and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Nicholas Eberstadt is our guest. He's the Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute. Book coming out later this month, Men Without Work, the post-pandemic edition. You can pre-order it now at your favorite online bookseller. Uh, Nick, if I might, what did the COVID uh, policies do to work? My sense is, my sense about human nature, at least in the West, is... We naturally want to work. Children love to play store. They love to play policemen. They love to play firemen. And I got to tell you, it seemed to me, and I maybe you tell me if I'm overstating it, but it seemed to me in 2020, 2021, 
this government of ours did its level best to ruin that natural desire and work ethic in young people. Maybe it turns out across all forms of ages, but it seems we did something unnatural that changed an ethos here. Am I overstating it or am I touching a part of the elephant here, sir? Well, I, I think the unintended consequences of our pandemic uh, emergency rescue effort were enormous. And we always know that with any sort of government intervention in society and economy, there are unintended consequences. The bigger the intervention, the bigger the unintended consequences. So when you're trying to rescue a nation from the risk of a second Great Depression, you're getting to a pretty big scale of unintended consequences, just unavoidably, I think. Uh, because of the way that the pandemic rescue policies unfolded, we ended up disincentivizing work in the United States, I think, as never before. An unintended consequence of trying to uh, save us from uh, save us from a economic collapse. Mm-hmm. Uh, we remember the everybody remembers the six hundred dollar a week pandemic right. uh, unemployment benefits. They're basically unconditional yep. for a lot of people. Then it became three hundred dollars. Uh, I mean, it was basically a, a universal basic income kind of test drive that we had in the United States. So what happened? What happened? Big picture. Uh, even though this was a national economic crisis. The scale of the transfers of the government benefits was so massive that the national disposable income turned out to be above trend for 2020 and 2021. People made more money than before COVID. More than before. Yeah. uh, Even though it was a national crisis. Yeah. And spending ended up being higher than before trend. <laughs> it's so the opposite of welfare so reform. We paid people not to work. Okay. Yeah. We All had right. so much borrowed money in our pockets uh, that the, we couldn't spend. The national savings rate more than doubled during 2020 and 2021. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's astonishing. Mm-hmm. There's all borrowed money, right? Mm-hmm. And government, you know, public debt put into private pockets. About two and a half trillion dollars of, uh, of extra saving in that uh, in that amazing uh, in that amazing period of time. Now, with the, with those extra resources, people could either supplement uh, their income; they could substitute for it, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of substitution for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are people, I think, are still spending their uh, what we want to call it. COVID uh, policy lottery winning mm-hmm. is still sending them down. And we see about, as I said, about 4 million fewer workers than we would have expected on, pre, uh, on pre-COVID trends. That's a, that's a big gap. Do we get it back, Nick? Do we get it back? Do we get the work ethic back? Will we see a strong portion, a large portion of this uh, of these millions go back to work at some point? I mean, I suppose we're in Yogi Berra territory. It's the hardest thing to predict is the future. But what's your sense? We'll see some, but not all, is yeah. my guess. Okay. I've emphasized it's a guess. Yeah. I mean, what's going to solve the uh, solve the gap or fill the gap is some uh, the uh, the you know the scarce labor gap, the uh, job openings. 
those are going to be filled by automation, by immigration, and by recession, okay. I'm afraid to say. Okay. Uh, and so we will see... Um, you know, we will see a return of some uh, workers to the workforce, but I think we'd be pretty optimistic if we were going to say we'll see everybody back. Nick, I don't know if there's any way to know this. Uh, I have a friend who does very well. I mean, you know, better better than most people could better than I can imagine, frankly, and buys a lot of luxury bands, just loves to shop. And one of the things she told me um, she experienced at the high-end retailers is long lines in front of the most expensive, your Gucci-type stores. And I said, well, what explains that? And she said, COVID checks. These are people she never sees in those stores before. Do you think there's an element of that going on? Not that there's necessarily something specific or inherently wrong with it, so to speak, but uh, were we driving people to spend money they won't have in another year or two? Well, my guess would be that uh, for a fair fraction of the former workforce, uh, people are going to find that they're in a sort of a premature retirement yeah. and maybe yeah. an yeah. unsustainable retirement. And for many in that contingent, I think we'd expect a return to work, but not all. Again, not all. And th- this has this has had a, I think, a corrosive. A discouraging impact on the work ethic in the United States as well. Um, and family we, formation, too, in a sense, right? Family formation. Well, Who wants to marry family, a no-load, right? For, well, family formation, as you know very well, Seth, is kind of like going through the floor. Yeah. Um, and especially among, uh, among millennials, there's a real kind of um, anxiety or fear yeah. about uh, committing yeah. and uh, and all that comes with that. So um, I, th- I think that I think that to some degree government can help or government can help by not <laughs> by not uh, inadvertently harming right. but what we what we really I think need most of all, is stuff that government can't do, and that has to do with our ethos and our national spirit. And we have to recognize that um, you know, it's terribly condescending, and it's, I think, actually insidious and poisonous to take the posture that there's work not worth doing, yeah. work not worth having. Right. I mean, work work is more than dollars and cents. Yep. Work is a service to others that helps complete you. you bet. I mean, it connects you, uh, connects you with your family, connects you with your society, not just the economy. And we live in a uh, we live in a time right now where part of the I think part of the crisis of trust in the United States is that so many people are disconnected yeah. from society, the basic institutions of life. Um, Kickstarting uh, those connections back again through work is something that we can do and we can encourage, and I certainly think we should praise. We should be, uh, be absolutely unambiguous that this is, a, this is a fine thing. It's a desirable thing. John Witherspoon taught his student, James Madison, do not live useless and die contemptible. He took that lesson. Nick Eberstadt, thank you so very much. Again, folks, you want his book. You can pre-order it online, Men Without Work, post-pandemic edition. Nicholas Eberstadt, sir, Godspeed and thank you.
Thank you so much once again, Seth. Absolutely. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be back with a final thought. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. Again, thanks to my uh, guest producers today, Jeremy and Ramon. Appreciate both of you. Uh, Portions of the show brought to you by Balance of Nature. Best product I've ever taken. One daily dose, and you're good to go. You get a blend of 16 whole fruits and 15 whole vegetables. Balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. I suppose I'd close the show with this. This work ethic thing, I was big on it during COVID. I'm glad Nick Eberstadt is on the case. Uh, We are ruining men in this country, which um, isn't as if we were in great shape before COVID. COVID did a real number on them, a real number on them, destroying not only the work ethic, uh, but endowing people not to work. As I jokingly said to Nick, we did the opposite of welfare reform. Uh, When we did welfare reform in the 90s, the point was to give government subvention if and only if you could prove you were working. What our government's wisdom was during COVID is we will pay you not to work. We will pay you to have idle hands, and we shall see what will come of it, as if we didn't know. Teddy Roosevelt put it that, quote, a life of ignoble ease, a life of that pace which springs merely from lack either of desire or of power to strive after great things, is as little worthy of a nation as of an individual. I ask only that what every self-respecting American demands from himself and from his sons shall be demanded of the American nation as a whole. Who among you would teach your boys that ease, that peace, is to be the first consideration in their eyes, to be the ultimate goal after which they Strive. We do not admire the man of timid peace. We admire the man who embodies victorious effort, the man who never wrongs his neighbor, who is prompt to help a friend, but who has those virile qualities necessary to win in the stern strife of actual life. It is hard to fail, but it is worse never to have tried to succeed, Theodore Roosevelt said. Finally, he put it, in this life we get nothing except by effort. Freedom from effort in the present merely means that there have been stored up efforts in the past. If man treats his periods of freedom from the need of actual labor as a period not of preparation but of enjoyment, he shows that he is simply a cumberer of the earth's surface and he surely unfits himself to hold his own with his fellows if the need to do so should again rise. We've done this to ourselves, folks. This is why Lincoln warned in the 1830s if death be our lot it will only come from suicide we will be the author and finisher we ourselves we can turn it around folks we can turn it around with the basics with common sense with the martial virtues and paying attention to all the wisdom we accumulated up until about march of 2020 and still seem not to be able to get out of that rut God bless you all. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth Liebson, and class is dismissed.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.